can go. A scripture reading today comes from Luke 22, 1 through 30. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A kitchen table is not something we would normally expect to see at a memorial service. But as I entered the sanctuary, there it was. A kitchen table with four chairs around it, and on the end chair was a well-worn towel. Now, I recognized this table immediately because it was a table I sat at for many years. It was the table where my mom served us all. My mom was a devoted follower of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, and somehow she understood so powerfully that inextricably linked to her Christian faith was this idea of hospitality. The hospitality was not just serving a great meal, it was a posture of kingdom life. And perhaps the greatest lesson she taught me was the one she left behind. And that is that a well-worn kitchen table and a well-used towel capture the kingdom life of a disciple of Jesus. Jesus had taught her that hospitality is at the heart of Christian life and the kingdom. It is a portrait of a life of true greatness. 
And when we look at Jesus' life and his teaching, we realize, don't we, that Jesus doesn't condemn our human desire for greatness, but Jesus does redefine it. He reframes what true greatness is. And we're going to see this morning in our text that Jesus' kingdom table, it is there that greatness is turned upside down. So how does Jesus' table turn greatness upside down? If you have a Bible handy, turn with me to Luke's gospel in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 22. Now, if you've been a part of our conversation in Luke and our exploration, as a church family, we are in a message series we've entitled, through the gospel of Luke, Rediscovering the Kingdom. And today I would like us to explore together three kingdom paradoxes at Jesus' table. Now, in our text this morning, the imagery of a table is the connecting literary motif in this chapter, chapter 22. And let's remember that paradoxes are truths that at first glance may seem absurd or self-contradictory. But in reality, with greater reflection, they actually express a deep truth. And in our text, we are going to see three of them this morning. It will help us frame the thoughts of our mind around this text. First, the first paradox is that outsiders are insiders. Secondly, the strangers are family. And third, leaders are servants. Now, the first paradox I want us to examine is that outsiders are insiders. Now, notice as you enter this text, Luke sets this text within the context of deep and vivid literary contrast. As chapter 21 ends, we have the people, the broad people, hanging on every word of Jesus. But as chapter 22 begins, Luke focuses their attention on the religious leaders. And rather than hanging on every word, they are plotting to kill Jesus. So think with me for a moment how paradoxical this is. The religious leaders would have been considered by themselves and others in their culture as having the insider track with God and the average sort of less religious people, those hoi polois, <laughs> as having an outside track with God. But Luke right away is turning this idea inside out and upside down. And on top of that, we read in verses 3 through 6 that Judas, who would have been considered the ultimate insider with Jesus, is now seen for who he is. He is the betraying outsider. Now, in rediscovering Jesus' kingdom, often through the Gospel of Luke, we repeatedly see how things often are not as they first seem to be. And throughout Luke's Gospel, isn't it true, we observe how the religious leaders who thought they were the insiders, right, closest to God, are not at all. The insiders are actually those who are viewed as outsiders, the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the broken, the irreligious, the lowest on the social rung. But the good news of the kingdom Jesus is bringing is that even those on the lowest social rung, even the outcasts, the ultimate outsiders can be insiders in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing into the world. Such good news. And this is stunning good news. That at Jesus' kingdom table of grace, it is open to all, even to those who are deemed outsiders. So Luke introduces us first with the first paradox at Jesus' kingdom table, and that is outsiders are insiders. But also notice the second paradox, and that is that strangers are family. 
Now, if you have your text open, beginning in verse 7, Luke tells us that the Passover is at hand. And Jesus makes amazing provisions to eat the Passover meal with his disciples. In telling this story, Luke quickly zooms in his literary lens to that upper room where Jesus is enjoying this Passover meal with his disciples. Now look with me carefully at verses 14 through 16. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, or at table technically, and the apostles or disciples with him. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, from our distant cultural location and time and space, it's really hard, isn't it, for us to fully grasp the high relational, joyful intensity, the intimacy of this moment that Luke is describing for us. The gospel writer John gives a parallel account of this, and I encourage you to read it. It fills in many more details, much more of the fuller conversation Jesus has with his disciples around the Passover meal. But it is so important to the gospel writer John. Think about this for a minute. It's stunning, actually. John will devote chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 of his gospel. That's five chapters of 21 chapters to this one intimate Passover meal an evening with Jesus that Jesus had with those closest to him. Now, John's primarily Jewish readers, unlike Luke's readers, would have completely got this. Because for Jewish people, the Passover meal, or Seder, was enjoyed with family and was a highlight of every year and a highlight of their lives. I experienced this several years ago when Liz and I spent a graduate study time in Jerusalem, lived in Jerusalem and studied there. And I remember being invited to a Seder in Jerusalem. It was awesome. It was a wonderful experience for me. I remember all the different aspects of it, the multi-sensory aspects, the beautiful Hebrew prayers of blessing, how I love those, the tasting of the bitter herbs, the four cups of remembrance. All parts of the Seder were rich with symbolism and meaning and sensory realities. But you know what I remember most is the warmth of the room we were in. And I remember the joyful countenance of our Jewish hosts and the faces of joy on them. Think with me for a moment. Though Liz and I were from a far country, we were from thousands of miles away, we were Gentiles by birth, we were invited into that joy-filled space. In other words, as strangers, we were welcomed as family. Now, Jesus reflects this familial joy and welcoming love when he says in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Now, it's important to understand that the word Luke employs here in the original language captures this deep feeling, this deep emotion, this deep joy bubbling over in Jesus' heart. As he often does, Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message brilliantly captures this. Let me share it with you. He writes, when it was time, he, Jesus, sat down, all the apostles with him, they're sitting on the floor with a low table, and said these words, you have no idea how much I have looked forward to eating this Passover meal with you. That's it. 
The Passover meal, again, which was often called the Seder, the Passover actually went seven days, but the meal, the Seder, was the high point. It's important for all of us to grasp it was not celebrated in the temple with strangers. It was celebrated in the home with family or the closest of friends. Now, this was the very design God had given Passover in the history of Israel's deliverance over slavery in Egypt. It's described in detail in Exodus chapter 12 in the Old Testament. And I would encourage you this week or today to read carefully Exodus 12 and capture the rich imagery of Passover, the lamb, the shed blood, the symbolic rituals of Passover that is still celebrated, imagine that, over 2,000 years ago, actually over 4,000 years ago, practiced still today in Jesus and Jewish-focused homes. But let me say, the while of Passover does look backward, right? It also looked forward and still does. Passover reminded God's covenant people of God's deliverance in the past, yes. But even at Jesus' time, it anticipated a coming messianic deliverance. So it's not surprising that as Jesus shares this Seder with his disciples, he speaks not of the past, but primarily of the future here in verse 16. And he says, I'm not going to eat this again with you guys until that day when his implication here is when history is consummated and his messianic kingdom is fully realized. Now let's grasp together the good news of Jesus' kingdom meant not just individual deliverance, as good as that is, but it meant being welcomed into a brand new family. Now keep that in mind. The New Testament writers will build off this over and over again. They'll use language like, we were once outsiders. We were once strangers. We were once aliens. We were alienated from God. But now, in Christ, you and I, we are invited to his kingdom table of grace. And the idea of being invited to his table says one thing profoundly, that we are now family. The gospel writer John again expands Jesus' words here. As we enter back into the upper room in that Passover Seder moment, Jesus says to them in John 15, 15, listen carefully. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Now, in English, in contemporary thinking, when we hear the word friends, <laughs> we may think of those we, you know, friend on Facebook or someone we really don't know very well. Are we just someone we casually meet, a fellow worker or a classmate or a friend? And we simply think of it that way. But rather, in this cultural context, in Jesus' words, friendship meant much, much more. Friendship was one of the most embodied and treasured realities of daily life. It was a relationship of unwavering loyalty, clearly. It was one of deep intimacy, of the joyful security of knowing and being known by another. The wisdom writer of Proverbs captures this brilliantly. He describes the familial kind of love that friendship brings. He says, there is a friend, get this, that sticks closer than a brother. This is what Jesus is saying to his followers around the Passover table. He is saying to them, you are my family now. At my kingdom of grace, my table of grace, you are warmly welcomed. You are totally accepted. 
You are completely safe. You are secure in my love. You will never be alone. The first kingdom paradox of Jesus' table is that outsiders are insiders. The second one is that strangers are family. But notice where Luke focuses, and that's the third paradox, that leaders are servants. Now that this paradox emerges here in this text seems abrupt and surprising to us, doesn't it? Here we have this beautiful, tender scene of Jesus and his disciples sharing this intimate, joyful time together. They are family. And all of a sudden in our text, there is this literary hairpin turn. There's an abrupt change of the temperature, the emotional temperature in the room, and a contentious relational meltdown. Luke describes this emotional hairpin turn in verse 24. Look with me. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall at that moment? I just can't imagine. I think Peter probably was the ringleader in that. I don't know. But Luke doesn't tell us much about who's arguing or what they're exactly saying or how even long this contention lasted. But Luke seems to suggest by his literary form that Jesus finally interrupts their squabble. And what will Jesus say to them? What Jesus will say to them is some of the most radical words ever uttered. It was words that would turn their cultural assumptions upside down and their world inside out. Look at me at verses 25 to 27. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. Or, who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now again, because of our cultural location and distance, the jaw-dropping, radical nature of Jesus' words here may not get our full attention. They may get lost to us. So let's unpack this just a bit, okay? In verse 25, Jesus begins with common ground, common cultural ground. He points to the common cultural understanding of the day, unquestioned, of leadership. Leadership in Jesus' time and world was about position and power and prestige. And that is, you will notice specifically in the text, this idea of a benefactor, or we may say a patron. This is important for us to grasp. And let's go back in the first century. In the first century culture, patronage was this arrangement of a very unequal power relationship over those who had lower status often referred in the culture as clients of the patrons. Lower status people would, by the very nature often of survival and well-being, would ask a favor, usually financial or some kind of favor, of a patron. But in return for that, they assured that patron of their unwavering loyalty to the patron, and not only that, but to lavish praise on the patron. Think of it as kind of a quid pro quo. The patrons or benefactors Jesus refers to here, of course, love public praise. And they loved being seen as the top dog, so to speak. And you'll notice in the text, Jesus points to the Gentile kings as a glaring example of this leadership paradigm. Most clearly on Jesus' mind, clearly, was Rome. 
and its leadership of raw power. And in their kingdom, in Roman kingdoms, they exercised great power over others. They did it through self-serving ways, self-gratifying ways, and self-glorifying ways, ensconced in a patronage system. But Luke tells us in verse 6, and the original language is emphatic in its structure. Jesus looks at them and says, but not so with you. I imagine Jesus looking his disciples straight in the eyes and saying, not you, not in my kingdom. And he goes on to say, Jesus, hey, Jesus, I'm saying, rather than the greatest among you, the greatest among you is the youngest. And literally the word here, youngest, is not just chronological age, it's the lowest in social rank. So Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, being top dog begins at the low rung of the ladder. And then Jesus boldly says the kingdom paradox. Bluntly, clearly, leaders are servants. They are not self-serving patrons, but self-sacrificing servants. Now this may be, this moment, may be one of the best goat moments in all of the New Testament. In our time, the idea of goat has changed, right? If you're a baseball fan or a sports fan, you probably know that the term goat was used for a long time in the most derisive manner to describe athletes or others that blew it big time. You know, the guy who dropped the ball on the one yard line or missed the potential winning free throw, I think as a Chiefs fan of that 1995 NFL playoffs. God bless him, Chief Kicker Lynn Elliott. I didn't bless him at the moment, but if you remember that, and our buff of sports history, or sports history buff, he missed three field goals around 35 yards. And the Chiefs lost to the Indianapolis Colts 10 to seven in the NFL playoffs in 1995. I still remember that because he was such a goat and he was described as that. Now being viewed by others as a goat was bad news until a few years ago. And today the word has radically changed in its meaning and implication. GOAT, or G-O-A-T in an acronym in sports, has been turned upside down, inside out. GOAT is used now to describe someone as the greatest of all time. To be called a GOAT is the highest praise. And Muhammad Ali, the world champion boxer, said he was the greatest of all time. In fact, his company, which is fascinating, was named what? G-O-A-T. And most often, the GOAT acronym praises athletes. But culturally, this moment in this text is a goat moment. The idea that Jesus is presenting has been so radically transformed and what has been viewed culturally as the most shameful now becomes the most honorable. This is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus must have seen the absolute shock and utter horror on his disciples' face as he said these words. And you notice what he does. He asks them a simple question. And the implication is he doesn't really allow them to answer. Who is greater? The one who is being served at the table or the one who is serving that person at the table? You know the answer, right? And it doesn't seem like he even allows them to answer. <laughs> of course, he says, you believe it's the one being served at the table. But that's not it. Not on your life, he says. At my kingdom table, it's the one who serves that is the greatest. For look at me. I am the one who serves. In my kingdom, to lead is to serve. Now, if we look at the other gospel writer accounts of this moment, the gospel of John, John gives us more texture here. 
Most likely, Jesus unpacks this conversation after he has already demonstrated his servanthood to them. Jesus does the culturally unthinkable thing of washing his disciples' feet. Do you remember that? Here is the Lord of the universe, the incarnate Son of God, the Messiah, picking up a basin and towel and washing the stinky feet of his disciples. In other words, Jesus led with a basin and towel in his hands, and he has instructed his disciples to do the same. It is hard to overstate or even to completely comprehend the radical words Jesus speaks and the reshaping of a cultural paradigm of leadership and, yes, power. Well, let's think about this for a moment. Jesus offers his followers and, again, now his church, a table and a towel, not a raised arm or a fist. The loving and serving hospitality of the kingdom table radically transforms the will to power. Using power as Jesus did, we give it up to empower others. Now, in our very polarized and politicized cultural moment, the profound relevance and implications of Jesus' teaching here and his actions speak incredibly loudly to each one of us. We live in a time when the competing ideologies of our culture are seeking political and economic power in very self-serving ways, with very self-serving agendas. In a canceling culture, is it not true, we are now seeking to silence and marginalize those who see things differently than us or disagree with us. And rather than loving our enemies, as Jesus taught us, we cancel them. And rather than serving the common good in self-sacrificing ways, we often serve ourselves by seeking and holding on to power. Many of us have bought into the idea that leadership is about gaining power. It is about the oppressed usurping the oppressors. And the church can easily get caught up in this paradigm. We may seek to achieve political power at virtually any cost and raise our fists not embracing sacrificial service of picking up the basin and towel. The spirit of our age is one that is brilliantly summarized by Carl Truman in his excellent book that just came out last year. I highly recommend it. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And here's what he captures. He says, be whatever you want to be and do whatever works for you. And he brings on the sense that trample others to do it. Is that not the spirit of our age? But apprentices of Jesus have a radically different view of power than, than the world does. Power that is distinctly used differently. And perhaps our greatest distinction and possible Christian witness in our culture is our radically different approach to power. We do not seek power for power's sake as Christians, but whatever power we have been entrusted with, we steward not for our own self-service, but in self-sacrifice for others. At the end of the day, it's not about winning or losing, but our serving others and seeking the common good. You know, we talk a lot here at Christ Community about how Christian faith, properly understood, speaks into every nook and cranny of our daily life, about connecting Sunday to Monday. Imagine with me how vastly different our culture, our city would be at this moment if we faithfully embraced the kingdom paradox of servant leadership in our homes, neighborhoods, workplaces, communities, halls of government. Think with me for a moment. What Jesus called to basin and towel servant leadership will mean and should mean in your life and mine, in your marriage, for example. What difference would it make in deepening your intimacy with your spouse and the joy 
of that intimacy if you embrace serving your spouse? What if you were less concerned about getting your way in your marriage rather than loving your spouse the way Jesus does? Think of me for a moment about your place of work. Where has God called you? What difference would it make tomorrow, Monday, if you regularly picked up the basin and towel as you entered your workplace, wherever that is, paid or unpaid? What would it look like to have Jesus' view of leadership in serving your employees or your work colleagues or your customers? How would the culture and atmosphere of your office or your place of work radically change or your classroom if you model Christ-like leadership? In his classic book on leadership, The Art of Leadership, Max Dupree captures Jesus' radical reframing of leadership. And he says this, The first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. And in between, the two, the leader must become a servant and a debtor. Dupree writes, that sums up the progress of an artful leader. I find it fascinating that one of the leadership gurus of our time, Patrick Lencioni, echoes the words of Jesus, doesn't he? He puts it this way. There is no leadership but servant leadership. Jesus radically redefines greatness and leadership as humble service and self-sacrifice. Now, there's much we can say what Jesus is not saying. So let me just say just a moment about that. He's not saying leadership or servant is a doormat, a kind of whatever laissez-faire passivity that winks at evil or injustice. But let's remember the paradigm of leadership in Scripture is a shepherding one, and a shepherd had a staff and a rod. They are instruments of both encouragement and gentleness and correction. Christ-like leaders, servants, need to be courageous. But they also must maintain a servant's heart and carefully watch their hearts for the seduction of power and abuse of that power. Jesus reminds us at his kingdom table of grace, we find three paradoxes. Amazing paradoxes. Outsiders are insiders. Strangers are family and leaders are servants. And this morning, Jesus invites us to that kingdom table and holy communion. Here in this text, in verses 17 to 20, we read Jesus instituting the Lord's table. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Friends, in instituting Holy Communion, or the Lord's table, Jesus says we do this in remembrance of him. As we prepare to partake of the Lord's table, we remember Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sin and his death-defeating resurrection. But let us also remember the hope-filled truths that are profoundly applying to our moment. Let's remember three things as we prepare to partake of communion. First, let's remember together how much we are in need. We don't have to have it all together to come to his kingdom table of grace, amen? That we come as we are, broken and needy. We don't have to put up a front of false piety. Secondly, let's remember how much we are loved, okay? We don't have to prove ourselves to anyone. We can come to his kingdom table of grace and know how much we are loved and how secure we are in his love. And third, let's remember together how much we are one. We don't have to compare ourselves with others, who's the greatest, who's not the greatest. We can have security in who we are together in unity. So let us prepare to come to the Lord's kingdom table of grace. Take a moment where you are to prepare your heart. Gather the communion elements around you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, 
He invites you today to his kingdom table of grace.